Hello, friends. Welcome to Tell Us More, a podcast from Lake Forest Church Westlake, all about the messages we hear each and every week. I am your host, Nathan Story. It's my pleasure to be back here with Cesar Guerrero and Aaron Gibson. Hey, guys, my normal panel, but we're especially excited for our very special guest, Dr. Tim Laniak. Hey there. Hey, good morning. Yay! I'm so excited. This is going to be so awesome. Yeah, we've been looking forward to this. Uh, we teased it a little bit uh, last week. I don't know if we, I, I, I cut you off, Caesar. I don't know if I actually let you get the whole tease in that Dr. Laniac was coming, but uh, we were, we're hinting at something, and this is the big thing we've been looking forward to mm-hmm. um, for a couple of weeks. So Dr. Laniac, thank you for taking the time to do this and being a part of our show. You came to Westlake on Sunday and shared a message with us all about this, the story of Abraham. Our church is in um a series called The Whole Story. We're trying to look at, at major points in the Bible throughout the entire year. And as we've talked almost every week on the show, uh, we, a lot gets cut out. A lot, a lot we get the uh, kind of skimmed over. And so we're, we're happy to have this platform. Thankful for you guys at home for listening. And, and we're thankful to have our pastors be able to give this time to, to talk about the whole story. And in this case, the rest of the story. And Dr. Laney, I got a personal anecdote here to begin. I love the, the Paul Harvey reference there in the beginning. My dad <laughs> loved Paul Harvey. I would, I grew up listening to Paul Harvey and that his just kind of his meter and his, the way he spoke was just kind of enrapturing and just very yeah. interesting. And, and now you know the rest of the story. I love that you brought that up. That was so funny. Yeah. Well, that's good well, that you guys do this every week too to get the rest of the story. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well Nathan, uh, Nathan, I want to Nathan, before we jump in, I, I just want to yes. say uh, if to folks, if they miss Sunday, um, that they ought to go. This is one they uh, I can't say it's about myself, you know, but but, but about Dr. Laniac, <laughs> they definitely need to go back and watch the sermon online because there's some amazing visuals. Dr. Laniac brought yeah. some some graphics from the Bible journey um, that that really help you understand the Bible as one big story. And some of those graphics were just, man, that was worth the price of admission right there. <laughs> yeah. But I guess the other thing I'd want to say is uh, for folks who don't know Dr. Laniac, uh, let me let me give a little bit of his credentials before we jump into the topic, because um, uh, Dr. Laniac is, is a well-schooled person. He is an academic par excellence. So Dr. Laniac, you've studied, well, first of all, Dr. Laniac, teaches Old Testament. He's a professor of Old Testament studies at Gordon Conwell Seminary. He's a co-founder of Bible Journey. And I made the mistake of saying biblejourney.org. It's actually biblejourney.com. But uh, that whole online tool, amazing program. But not only that, he he studied, he has studied everywhere. He studied at uh, university in Jerusalem. Uh, I think he he studied at Harvard. Is that right? And then Uh of course, I mean, he's, he's been everywhere. Uh, he and Johnny Cash. So um, I, was say, well, I, I don't think we could. I don't think we could afford it. But I want to insert the uh, the Johnny Cash song here for a second. Yeah, <laughs> when we get to it. So, so I thought it might be fun just before we get into contact. Uh, Tim, how did you how did you get interested in Old Testament studies? What was yeah, it about that, 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 that just was like, man, this is where I want to double down. I. I went to, I was in a Christian home growing up where there was a lot of Bible. It was kind of a fundamentalist home. And one of the great treasures in in, um, historic fundamentalism is a lot of Bible. So a lot of Bible memory verses, Awana clubs. Um, I had a Christian school, Bible memory, um, you know, dinner table devotions. And we also had a church that had traditional missions conferences. And I had missionaries that stayed in our home during these conferences. And 
So I, I kind of had these early interests in the Bible and in missions triggered. And um, so I kind of left high school assuming that I would go into full-time missions, probably in a jungle setting. But <laughs> I went to Wheaton College for a, a year at least. My father actually discouraged me from just going off into a um, missionary training setting, setting with New Tribes Mission and at least take a year of Christian college. And I went to Wheaton and I started studying Bible as a major. And, uh, it, you know, I think honestly, I felt like everything was familiar. Um, you know, I had been swimming in the hymns, the Bible, the, the Bible studies, the, the vernacular of the evangelical kind of community. So I, I felt comfortable with it. And, uh, but I didn't feel comfortable being in a Christian environment. So I went to a state school. I lived in a co-ed dorm that was just like party from Thursday to <laughs> Sunday and um, wanted to have more, a little bit more of a mission field. And I had two things happen um, over the next year. One of them was that I met my wife, who was really a, a pagan, who came to faith that year. And I actually got to witness a true conversion out of paganism, whereas I, I had spent... I had spent all my time with Christians who at the most rededicated their lives when they were teenagers because they don't remember what their parents told them they did when they were five, <laughs> you know, but um, I felt, I also felt like I, I, um, I wanted to go back and study at Wheaton for a better education in terms of what I was studying. Cause I was studying social sciences. So it's sort of this social anthropology, sociology side of my interests and then also Bible and I went back to Wheaton by way of a summer study program that took me to Israel, Turkey, Greece, and Rome. And then after that, a bunch of us uh, traveled all over Europe. And what happened was uh, my first cross-cultural experiences, as they would be for anybody, were you know really life-altering. I had you know culture shock and all that, but they were in the lands of the Bible. And that kind of culture shock merged with sort of with with the Bible. And realizing that I didn't actually understand the Bible as much as I thought, and really, in retrospect, recognizing the concerning reality that I never would have known what I wouldn't have known. I, yeah. I could have gone on and sort of been a Bible expert with all of our little closed language, our vernacular, our vocabulary, and never known that sometimes yeah. the background opens up the back door, and when when the back door is open, you just get sucked into another world. And it's sort of like Narnia. It's like Alice in Wonderland. You, you're sort of in another place and you think, well, if this is true, then what does that actually mean about what I always thought was true? And, you know, it's, it's not like everyone has to go, but that's what it was. That changed it for me. And so then there were these parallel tracks of cross-cultural ministry and getting more education that was always more cross-cultural and often more Jewish. So I started at Brandeis University which was Jewish and it wasn't actually Jewish enough. They were trying to be a little bit more mainstream. And I went to Harvard and I had more Jewish professors and more anthropology <laughs> resources and it worked out great. Nice. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. When you described the, the, the Narnia Alice Wonderland, I kept thinking about Steve Martin in the jerk when he discovers rhythm and he says, uh, uh, if, if this is out there, then what else must be out there? And exactly. <laughs> that's a great line. That's a great line. <laughs> Well, to, to get to Sunday a little bit, I think you might have already been touching on this in, in kind of your introduction, but my first question for you, Dr. Laniak, was uh, what, why is it important for people of faith or people that are perhaps interested in faith to know these things, to know the rest of the story, to dig deeper into yeah. the Bible and, and what might be 
um, you know, behind and in front of it to use Bible journey. Kind of speak. Yeah. yeah. Well, I could give you um, maybe a, a formal theological answer and say that in the Christian tradition, we believe that the Bible is clear. It's adequately clear. There's a, a theological term, which is pers the perspicuity of scripture, which is just jargon for saying it is adequately clear so that people can understand it. So, so one thing to say right up front is you don't need to know the rest of the story. You can read the Bible. God can speak to you in the Bible. Um, but it's also the case that people that don't know the Bible well and that misuse the Bible can make all kinds of, um, they can create a lot of danger. They can create a lot of havoc and mayhem in the life of the church. And there are, there are casualties all over the history of the church because of people that literally don't, don't really even just read what's pretty simply there in the Bible because they have another lens that's actually dominating them. So mm. what you really want to do is to displace the kind of default lenses that we all have with ones that really come more out of the Bible's own world. Yeah. And then I would say the deeper you go, as long as it's done responsibly, the more it reinforces what's right there on the surface of the text. It doesn't, doesn't have to be esoteric. And of course, there's a danger on that side too, because there's so much out there in the field of academic specialization around the Bible, where people will often try to take a little piece of uh, maybe ambiguity in the Bible, or they'll take some extra outside the Bible kind of source and make out of it something that's so extreme that it pulls people away. And I have to say, for example, if you do, people get interested in COVID and doing the great courses, that's one thing, you know, someone gave a gift to my son-in-law, you know, sort of get signed up for the great courses. You can take a class in New Testament and think, well, this is one of the great courses in the country, a New Testament. That course is designed really to help people uh, to basically take away from people any confidence that the New Testament represents anything of divine origin and much more what's often called uh, really the texts of the winners. The people who fought for the first few centuries over what Christianity really was. And these are the ones that sort of won in these political fights and that there are Gnostic Gospels and other sources that are actually just, just as worthy of our interest right now. And so people get fascinated with that. Mm -hmm. But then there's something else, and that is what's probably the most intriguing for me. And that's what happened in my first trip, is that if you go into, we, we take people on trips to Israel, we go to a little place in Palestine where you go into a, a centuries-old house where you can see how there's like one floor of the house, but underneath it, they have a place for the animals. So it'd be kind of like a manger. And then up above that floor, kind of in the back, is an upper room. And that's really the kind of place that Mary and Joseph uh, didn't have room. It was inside of this closed house, something like that. And then so they stayed in the manger underneath the house. But you can stand in that house and you can tell parable after parable after story and say, so the guy who had his neighbor knocking at the door wants bread. He's in bed with his family. So you just say, well, this is it. The house has one floor really, and everybody's going to be lined up in bed, and this guy doesn't want to crawl over everybody, and where would he go to get the bread, and why is the neighbor so close, and why do they have everything latched up, and you know, you just kind of go from that to the lost coin, to, to Jesus' birth, the upper room, and all that, and 
you know, some of these just have so many layers of meaning that when you unpack them, it's not like you're trying to prove your faith. It's you're just enriching and deepening. And you know, one thing I find, Nathan, is that whether you come from a conservative Bible believing background where you say, we, we think the Bible's literally true, or you come from a more progressive or liberal orientation where you say, well, we kind of doubt whether or not the Bible's true, maybe it's fairy tales. What I find, and what a lot of my colleagues who do tours find, is that when people go to Israel, they actually find that both groups discover that they have treated the Bible like it was fantasy. Hmm. You actually go to a, a, a valley and you say, look, here's where the Philistines were, here's where David was, and the Israelites were sort of backed up into their side of these hills, and what was behind them was all their territory, and here's where the Philistines were, here's what's behind them on the plains, here's where they would have had a little confrontation where you can hear each other, here's the, here's the, the wadi or the valley where the stones were, here's David coming down, and you know, they understand the value of someone who's an archer or a sling thrower, so David does have a weapon, and, uh, when, you know, Goliath says, you come at me with these sticks, you know, David would have probably had a rod and a staff. And there's a history of giants. And, you know, you get them right from Genesis, that this history that, you know, Goliath really came from these larger, uh, you know, this kind of larger race in a way. Anyway, you kind of put it all down there and you have people, regardless of their background, who just feel like, I don't know if I ever read the story of David and Goliath, because it was always... I wouldn't say trivialized, but it was always flipped so quickly into a sermon illustration of we all need to fight the Goliaths in our life. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And it yeah. just, you, you just sort of lose all that texture. And therefore, when you start looking for the giants in your life, you're not necessarily aware of all the texture that also might be relevant mm. when we migrate back into our own world on the return trip. Uh, that's so that's fascinating. Yeah, I, I have a kind of follow-up question as I'm hearing you talk about David Goliath. I'm just curious, in your experience, have you found more of these kind of revelations from people uh, that are at least being touched by that story in particular in a different way? Do you find that happens more with people that maybe had a Sunday school lens on the David and Goliath feel or, or, or not? Do you, did you ever see a difference between people that heard the flannel graph version growing up over and over again? <laughs> Or, or does that happen to yeah, more people I, who never knew the story? Yeah, I, well, I, I hear it from both, yeah. but it feels different when you thought that you were the protectors of the conservative, theological, orthodox view of the Bible. It feels mm -hmm. different when you think, but maybe I thought it was a fairy tale, but I never said that. <laughs> but it, it's, okay. it's almost, but then the other side was yeah. sort of like, well, we thought these were all just mythical stories. And they, they even have secular Israeli archaeologists who don't believe that, you know, the Bible's inspired. And they're the ones that are sometimes pointing out, well, this, this is probably the layer where we, we think we found, if you can believe it, they think they have found an, uh, a palace in the same valley where David defeated Goliath. It was like a summer palace, and it dates back to his time. And they're saying this makes sense because this this was sort of commemorating something in David's life. So that's not even mentioned in the Bible. But you have people taking it so seriously, dating this piece of pottery and that little scarab and saying, we think this this is a royal installation, you know. Mm -hmm. So I'd say it kind of blows the circuits on both sides for different reasons. 
So what's the challenge then with like, you're talking about David, then I I can imagine that challenge becomes greater with a figure like Abraham. Like this past week, you did a really interesting job of explaining Abraham to us on a, like a global level, which is really cool. But how do they, how do they um, get more into the regional like historicity or even kind of, you know, the more intimate kind of geographical kind of things with, with someone like Abraham who feels even more distant than, than yeah, you're right for the people you talk about yeah yeah that's great it's a great question caesar because in some ways the history of scholarship uh takes into account the influence of a lot of people for whom the bible is not god's inspired word and in many cases they want to debunk it mm. they're not all bad people but a lot of them feel like religion is sort of like filled with superstition and a lot of old wives tales and the people cling to them and so a lot of times in academia, they want to free that up. And so what's ha- you can literally watch over the last couple hundred years, who in the Bible has lost historical uh, that, you know, validity? Mm. So uh, Adam and Eve went a long time ago. And now, you know, now there's still a lot of debate even among evangelicals about whether or not Adam and Eve were literal. But you can almost watch this. This, this is going to happen because it, Genesis 1 through 11 became this period of time where a lot of people say, well, that's really more written like, you know, people live a thousand years and there's, you know, all this stuff, the floods that we can't, you know, we can't guarantee happen in a literal seven day creation. So, so that kind of part of the Bible, that was suspect a long time ago. Mm. And then Abraham became suspect. And what will happen is, for example, it says that Abraham was kind of a, you know, he had flocks, but he also had camels. But if Abraham's 2000 BC and you don't have any other records of camels or caravans until a thousand years later, then you say, well, this is probably a story that's made up. You sort of create your ancestor that way. So Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, and you know, they're not mentioned in outside Bible resources, what are called extra biblical resources. Well, it, it kind of got to the point where, and, and then of course, for a long time, there was no record of some of the people groups like the Hittites. They weren't even mentioned outside the Bible. So then it seemed like the Bible was making up names. And then some of them are really local groups like Hivites. It's okay if you don't hear about them, but you get to the Philistines and now you're about 1200 BC. Well, let, let's say, I'm sorry, you get to Moses, you're about 1450. And there's no record of Moses in, his, in Egypt. Egypt's records. So you start peeling away these figures when you say there's nothing outside the Bible, no record of an exodus, any plagues that might have happened sound like they're more seasonal rather than all at once episodic, like 10 in a row. And, you know, no record of mass, mass migration of a huge slave class. And then they, then there's a lot of debate about whether or not any group of nomads in countless numbers are sort of moving into the promised land sometime before 1200. And Israel first gets mentioned outside the Bible in about 1206 BC in a big you know, steel monument, but then it's a people group um, and uh, not, not necessarily a city or anything. So it looks like there's a presence of a people. And so there's a sense in kind of secular scholarship that's, that's more highly critical of the Bible that Israel is sort of like this group that's developing a group consciousness much, much later, 800 years after Abraham, and that they are 
projecting kind of a mythical ancestral line that gives them legitimacy because of course a lot of their identity has to do with that. So anyway, people debated the conquest, they debated the exodus, they debated the conquest. And so, and then Saul, the narrative of Saul. So you kind of get to the point when you're at a thousand, you're literally a thousand years after Abraham to get to your question. And there was kind of a peg in the ground, you know, kind of like, well, around the time of David, it seems like you start having something that looks more like regular history writing, maybe. It, it, it evolves over time. Some people want to push it much, much later and give the Greeks the credit for doing the first history writing. But interestingly, in, in my, my era of scholarship, I've watched David and Solomon uh, kind of lose their footings. It's like the tide, the tide has pushed them out and everything archeologically that was dated to the 10th century uh, and even David in the 11th century, anything like that is sort of getting washed into the 9th century. So now it's sort of like, it's people like Ahab who are mentioned in extra biblical sources that you can trust are real. And then in your references to David and Solomon, maybe they're true uh, people, but they were just local chieftains. And all this talk about Solomon's great temple and that there was no king or no wisdom like his around the world, all that got suspect. And there's one archeologist named Israel Finkelstein who has risen to a great, great deal of prominence in Israel. And he's sort of the one putting pressure on going from the 10th century BC to the 9th. So I'd say that's part of what's out there in our background. And it is important. One of the things that Bible Journey does, it's not an apologetics curriculum where we're saying, how do we face off against all these views? But we do give people background so they can understand how much it can often provide color for the black and white text, but also how it can often often either directly or indirectly substantiate what the Bible says. So for example, the first time the name David was found in the site, there's a, there's a town of Dan that you know in the Bible from Dan to Beersheba, they found a, a little tablet that had something that referred to the son of David, which, or the, I'm sorry, the house of David. So it, it referred to a dynasty. And what happened was some of the most revisionist scholars and a lot of them came from Scandinavia. So there's a Copenhagen scholar who said, it's a forgery. And this was sort of one of those uh, beautiful moments to expose someone's bias on the other side. We've always been accused of being biased that everything's true, but that, that artifact has been proven to be real. It's not a forgery, it's accurate, the dating's accurate, it is David. And if you're trying to say it's a forgery, it's because you don't wanna believe the possibility that David was actually a king with a dynasty that started in the 10th century. Hmm. So that right now, that's sort of where the tide is and where the line is. And, uh, and I would say that um, there's also plenty of indirect evidence for patriarchal living, for, for the Semites, Semitic people being in Egypt back to 2000 BC. There's lots of evidence of the cross currents between Mesopotamia and Egypt. So you get to Moses, Moses grew up in the palace, likely would have known cuneiform as well as hieroglyphics. He would have known the languages of the East as well as his own. A lot of cross currents, also the covenant format that gets introduced in Genesis 15. And um, it, it starts to play itself out even more fully in Deuteronomy. 
A lot of these all come from way before the time of David, centuries before the time of David. And even the poetry that's in the Bible, they found it in, in modern day Syria, Lebanon, in Ugarit. Some of this stuff precedes the time of Moses. I'm sorry, precedes the time of Abraham. So there's really, really old stuff outside the Bible that makes the Bible sort of sit comfortably, even wife-sister traditions. I just was reading today again about, you know, Abraham saying to Sarah, everywhere we go, tell them that you're my sister. And actually in ancient Hurrian uh, tablets, there are wedding ceremonies, which literally for the sake of a kinship society, you literally, in the process of marrying your wife, you adopt her as a sister. In, in case she was his cousin, he says that. What, you know, she's the daughter of my mother, but not my father or something like that. But mm -hmm. so he was he was just playing a game like that, that he felt like he could sort of technically stand behind, although it almost <laughs> lost his head. And of course, <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Well, well, if I could jump in, because gosh, first of all, um, boy, what a just a taste of the academic integrity, right? Like how yeah. cool is all that? And and uh, to, to just back on that idea of kind of, a door number three, right? Not yeah. not accepting everything blindly, and then also not just denying everything blindly. But how do we? Right. We talk at Lake Force a lot about how do we? We want to be intelligent Christians. We we want to be open minded. We, you know what? We don't we don't want to we don't want to be uh, having to check our brains at the door. So I love that. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned you mentioned the Abraham Sarah story. He's he goes in you know he goes into Egypt and he lies or or maybe doesn't lie here. Maybe he. He's trying to take something that's kind of a half truth and leverage right. it for his own advantage. Yeah. Uh, and there, there are some wacky stories in Abraham's life like that. Um, Dr. Leanne, yeah. you mentioned, or we talked about before the podcast today, uh, this one story from Abraham's life that many, many of our listeners will be familiar with or they'll have heard of. And but it's also often a hang-up for Christians. Like, what do I right. do with this? And that's the story of God asking Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Um, I mean, to a modern ear, that 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 sounds like child abuse, right? Like, yeah. that's um, not a guy I want to take advice from, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. you know, how knowing that we're intelligent Christians, or we want yeah. to be, we aspire to be intelligent, we we don't want to just skip over that story. How how do we how do we wrestle with something like that in Abraham's life? Yeah. Well, it's probably the most, uh, you know, disconcerting, um, you know, moment in all the Abraham stories. I mean, people can understand the surrogacy of Hagar and, you know, not being able to wait long enough. Um, I think one thing that we have often been um, probably contaminated by in the West is a uh, ironically ethnocentric uh, approach to history. Um, we, you know, we're supposedly so uh, culturally um, appreciative, and we believe in, you know, supposedly in cultural diversity to the point where we are not just eclectic, but we actually have no universals because we have this kind of cultural relativism. And yet, there are some things around the world that we just consider barbaric. And we don't actually uh, reckon with the inner logic, the traditional value, and the interconnection with the matrix of values that dominate the whole society. And so we just sort of trash it. And, and in reality, there are other cultures that are more sophisticated than ours today. You, you can be in Japan. I mean, Japan has 
historically had this view of America as that it's just sort of simple, flat, black and white. It just doesn't have all because it's not a high context culture. So we're we're not the only ones doing it, and we're also not the only ones that are somehow so superior that everything else looks differently. So I think one of the things that's important when you go into the land of the Bible or the world of the Bible is to make sure that we are certainly in touch with some of our sensibilities that are being triggered, but that we don't automatically collapse all that into some kind of an ethnocentric judgment that the Bible has to dig us out of, you know, and just say, oh, no, it's not as bad as you think, not as bad as you think. <laughs> so I think there's some things in the Bible, like when we get into some of the laws, we're going to get into some things where you just have to say, I don't really get that. And I'm sure I don't get it because culturally I didn't grow up thinking that way and I didn't have it reinforced. But that sacrificial system is not just about sin and it's not just about blood. It's, it's about a lot of other things. And you have to just kind of hold all of it as a mystery. And that's one place in Bible journey where I tell people, I, I, I don't really have a good answer to give you about the difference between the purification and the sin offerings. I'm going to just tell you that it actually made sense to them. And it doesn't make sense to us because we don't really have a bridge to kind of like, why is leprosy and mold and sin somehow all going to be expiated the same way? But this is a great opportunity. Remember, you know, in the words of um, the Wizard of Oz, we're not in Kansas anymore. Mm -hmm. This is like you <laughs> yeah. go to another country and some people do some really, really weird things mm -hmm. to us, but nobody there is questioning it. So. I think the best explanation for it, whether or not it resonates well with us, is takes into account several things. One of them is that the father of a family, the patriarch, is the absolute owner of everyone in the family. Not just, not just the master, but the owner, and that the owner has an absolute right to do whatever he wants. He can say to a daughter, your mother died. I want you to take her place as the woman who takes care of the family. You won't get married. I mean, a lot of control. And this is true in a lot of traditional societies today. So Abraham has that right. Also, in their religious world, it was actually one of the most devout ways to show reverence to your deity to devote a family member, a, a, a child, a firstborn child, a because this is, this is your way of saying, I mean, this is a kind of leverage with the deities in a world where there was more of a, um, you could call it a magical, mechanical relationship with the gods. So you, you give your child, and what you're really saying is, I honor you, but also this reciprocity here. If I give you what's most valuable to me, I can expect something to work out for me in return. And, and presumably that might be more children to make up for the one that I give up. So in that world, I think God is doing something that is profoundly revelatory and culturally contextual. And it would have been very difficult for any of us to make sense of it, except in retrospect through the telescope of history. But he's yeah. taking Abraham right to a place where Abraham would have been culturally familiar. So God said, I'm going to give you a child. He's a child of promise. He's mine. And then God can say to Abraham, as much as he didn't want to hear it, he can say, and because that child's mine, I want him back. And the way to say that you can have him back is to go ahead and put him on a pile of sticks and burn him. And <clears throat> this was 
not just a peculiar thing for God. In fact, it's almost like it's a human instinct. When people really want God's attention, when they really want God's favor, that's kind of what they do. So, um, you know, in the broader land of Canaan, child sacrifice was one of the characteristic sins that God would eventually tell Israel to remove because it's what they tended to do. And of course, in Central South America, there's other places where burning children. I, I went to um, a place in Turkey where uh, it says Satan is worshipped in the book of Revelation. And they, they had like this uh, golden pig on an altar. And they would literally put Christians, among other people, inside this golden pig and just literally broil them to death. And um, it's just an assumption that making like a human sacrifice is on the highest level of all the sacrifices you could make. So I think God's taking Abraham to a place that Abraham can understand. So he's speaking Abraham's cultural language and saying, this is my son. Now prove it. Okay. Prove it means give him back to me. And that way there, you will demonstrate that, you know, the promise I gave you when you were 75 that I reaffirmed when you were in 85 and that finally at a hundred you got that you're still willing to say he's mine. But then the fact that God rescues him with a substitute for me mm -hmm. makes this one of the most beautiful uh, moments in our journey through scripture as something rich in bewildering, you know, detailed culture and also rich in the best theology in the Bible, because God's saying to Abraham at that moment, now I know that you would have sacrificed your son, but I'm not going to ask you to do that. And, and in retrospect, we can say God never wanted anyone to do that because it was a misunderstanding of sacrifice. But he did that to prepare the way to say, I will be giving you a substitute. And the system that follows with Moses takes 400 years to get a system in place, but the system that follows is going to have built into it a recognition that the firstborn is always God's and that the animals that are sacrificed are substitutes for people rather than sacrificing people. And all the while God is doing that, he's preparing the whole liturgical system for the time when there's a literal offering of God's son, mm -hmm. which is sort of doing the culturally thinkable, biblically now unthinkable, and now all of a sudden it's the celestial remedy. That and, and then of all things, it tells us in Chronicles that Moriah was the place where the temple was built. So all of this substitutionary stuff was taking place on Mount Moriah ever since Abraham, I mean, ever since they settled there, to sort of emphasize that God had a substitution so that you wouldn't have to keep giving your sons. Because remember, when they left Egypt, the firstborn sons were supposed to be set apart from God, for God because they weren't killed by the angel of death. And God's saying, yeah, but they're still mine, just like the first of everything. But he never let go of this other tradition, which is, I can donate my son not donate but i can offer my son as a sacrifice and in that case it will um it will be sort of the expiation for the world and put an end to the whole sacrificial system unbelievable mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> so to, yeah. I mean, to go to, to go to kierkegaard i, th I think kierkegaard <laughs> i mean kierkegaard goes after a an existential um 
kind of challenge like what does it mean to live by faith and faith is being able to act without understanding and i think that's true but it doesn't really necessarily unwrap the cultural context that would have both made sense to abraham challenge his faith and then also set in place this redemptive trajectory so i mean you know just well there so you go much. And uh, boy, and another Scandinavian that that d- did profess faith, right? So that, right. that's right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, man, holy cow! Um, you know, if if anything, just uh, even for folks who who might have tracked with parts of that, uh, I think I kept up with most of it. I think understanding that um, there are other ways to to see that story than the way we might see it through our own cultural biased lens. Um, but I think you said that at the beginning of the podcast today, what a great way to think about the Bible in this series that we're doing, that that maybe one of the first tasks for all of us is to learn how to, to set aside my own lens that I would normally come at it and, and consider the lens that the Bible wants to invite me to see it through, right? And I think the fact that God redeems, God's redemptive message is pressing its way into this kind of cultural fabric in the days of the Bible one of the one of the nice things I think that happens over time in Bible journey is that we realize that he is as redemptively interested and involved in the fabric of our own culture. Yeah. So we're making choices. God's leading us into moments that are as rooted and grounded in our world, our language, our institutions, our ideas, as it was for them. So hopefully these aren't one way tickets to a strange world, uh, but they're actually a chance to kind of come back and be more aware of what it is that God's doing in this world, because he, he, he's culturally literate, mm-hmm. to make a, you know, to, to be simplistic. God's culturally literate, and he really is redeeming every cultural institution and idea, and he's sending out us out as emissaries into these different societies and cultures. And they're not just like broad ones, like American society in the wake of Donald Trump and race riots and all. No, it's also institutions, people that run businesses. They have a corporate culture, people that are running educational, you know, people that are on the state board of education or the, you know, the city board of education. That I've just become more and more impressed in my own work in the broader community at what a stake God has in every setting and how he has he's sort of given us the opportunity to exercise his cultural competence to mediate the good news. Mm-hmm. And it just, because it now includes the world and all of us that he's, you know, sort of put on earth to do it. There's just no end to the testimonies of the ways that God is asking people to follow him. And then when they do uh, just surprising their world and them in the process. Yeah. And that, and that's remarkable. Uh to see, and I, you, you mentioned the, the David and Goliath sermon illustration thing, but I, I found myself, my mind wandering to a sermon illustration for Abraham and Isaac, actually, which is kind of funny. But it's when you look at all of these background kind of all this information and all the context that you, you begin, you know, you could, you could often read the Bible and think, um, my goodness, this text is so old, it has nothing to say for me. And yet, as I'm hearing about all of these things about Abraham and Isaac, I begin to think in that sermon illustration way because I'm doomed to think that way because I work for a church, right? It just happens. <laughs> right. We try to find ways to make the, the text relatable to people. And right. I begin right. to think, okay, what is it that God wants me to lay down? 
right that because it's the big thing it's the it's a god-given thing but at the same time i have now taken ownership of it and yet god wants to say you're the one i'm or i'm the one that gave this to you so you have to hold on loosely to use that classic rock song a little bit hold on loosely but don't let go right yeah right (laughs) yeah it's just just amazing once you dive into these things you kind of understand you know counterintuitively how it could apply to you and understand be understood by you right yeah and and if your initial reading was simply to have that takeaway it would be good there there are giants in our life uh we need to trust god you know there are things we need to lay on the altar and give up that that's legitimate um good responsiveness as a disciple but when we talked about, say, the layers of the Abraham story, one other benefit of digging a little deeper is, and, you know, if I lay this down, it's actually not just about me. It's not just my story with my child that I have to lay down with uh, maybe my expectations of what they would do with their life or whatever, but it, or this job that I want or whatever. But all of a sudden you start to say, I'm part of this web that God is weaving and your choice to trust is not just with the one thing. Your choice to trust is that God actually has this plan that is at work with so much more. And I think that's part of what the benefit is. It just it just adds more fuel to the discipleship choice. Yeah, that's amazing. It's amazing to have those, those uh, revelations. Well, uh, Dr. Laniak, you've certainly given us a ton to think about, and a, a ton for our listeners to think about. I have you mentioned redemption, so I had one more question, and perhaps we can close with this and give you a, a time to add anything else you'd like to. But uh, in your your sermon on Sunday, you mentioned all of the re uh, yeah. statements in the Bible, and so I just, out of curiosity, was wondering if you could maybe close our time by telling us what your some of your favorite. You mentioned redemption earlier, just a few moments ago, but perhaps yeah. apart from that, what are some of your favorite re? statements yeah, that's in good the Bible question, Nathan. That's great yeah. question. that we see God doing and, and restoring yeah. you know, all those things. Well, I, I mentioned quite a few of them that are all favorites, you know, because like recreation is probably the most powerful one because it's like God can hit a restart on the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Like after the flood, after the tower of Babel, yeah, yeah, yeah. you right. know, just okay. so that, and, And with that, renew kind of carries with it because God's covenant with Abraham, it does to some extent get renewed when he makes the covenant with Israel at Sinai. It gets expanded and some elements are less unconditional and they become more temporal. But then the new covenant, I tend to think of the new covenant as a renewed covenant because we have such a tendency to have a sharp boundary. Mm. The um, in in my own life, the the you know the redeem the the redeem or the restore piece. Um, sometimes I use another non-reword, which is overrule. I see God at work in so many ways. I mean, we're just having a lot of problems with our house. I mentioned here. Um, I, I see people who sometimes come at us with a with a uh, what can they get out of it and how can they hurt us and. Um, I just have this sense that there's nothing the devil wants to do on earth that God doesn't want to overrule because he's the ruler and being a ruler doesn't mean that he just forces his rule. It just means that whatever the enemy ever does, he, he overrules. So I view that as a way of redeeming 
And I feel like that's sort of what we live with all the time is do we really trust him to redeem just about anything that happens? And, you know, you have children, you have, you have disappointments, you have places where you took a fork in the road and you think they're lost. I, you know, the seminary has been filled with people who say, um, you know, God called me 10 years ago and I've been running ever since. I, there's so many stories of people who just say, like, I, I literally will tell people, you know, are you sure that you're ready to start seminary now? And they say, oh, yeah. I say, well, you know, we're starting classes this weekend. I say, well, no problem. I say, well, have you talked with your wife about it? And, you know, <laughs> one guy called his wife and, and in my office, because I, I couldn't believe he was just going to drop everything and start. He said, I said, what did she say? She said, well, what are you waiting for? It's been so long, you know, it's like, so, you know, we, we really, and, but then what happens is you go to seminary and you think, okay, I'm finally getting back to where I should have been 10 years ago. Hmm. And then what ends up happening is God shows you that everything that happened in those 10 years, he's redeeming, he's including, and they all become part of the story that he's writing. So uh, I just feel like we're witnesses of that. So good. Makes yeah. me think of that re repurposing, right? right exactly. Every, every bit of it. Repurpose. Yep. Uh, yep. Repurposing and uh, Nathan, that was for sure. Yeah. Nathan, that's such a good question. Yeah. Super. Well, Dr. Lenak, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Uh, that is, yeah, that, that is all the time we have for this week's episode of Tell Us More. I want to thank Aaron and Caesar for joining us as well. Thanks, guys. Thanks for being the part of the panel. Uh, friends, join us next time when we ask those. Uh, who minister to us to tell us more. Goodbye.